This is Ushers to Ashes, a podcast about the other 80s. Today's episode will be devoted to one of the most influential albums of its day, Young Marble Giant's unassuming Colossal Youth. But first, here's the band's career in less than a minute. Young Marble Giants formed in Cardiff, Wales in 1978. They were Stuart Moxham on guitar, his brother Philip on bass and Alison Statton on vocals. On the strength of two tracks on a local compilation album, indie label Rough Trade signed the band and set them up in a converted farmhouse in Wales to record their only album, Colossal Youth. The band played dates in Europe and had a brief North American tour, after which they broke up, leaving two further EPs, Final Day and Test Card. Stuart went on to form The Gist, and Alison formed Weekend. Both acts featured contributions by Philip Moxon and released debut albums in 1982. The trio have since worked with each other on various projects and have reunited for a number of concerts as Young Marble Giants, the most recent and avowedly final gig in London in 2015. Okay, so Colossal Youth by Young Marble Giants. Now, this is an album that I did not encounter in the 1980s. I had never heard of Young Marble Giants until you, Peter, gave me your vinyl copy of the album, Colossal Youth, and it blew me away. I loved it. This was an incredible experience as soon as I dropped uh, the needle onto the vinyl. And... I'll tell you very briefly what I really enjoyed. They struck me as a band that had mastered the art of atmosphere. And uh, the album just took me into a kind of alternate space. I loved the minimalism of it. Uh, You know, there was a sense in which each instrument had its own space in the mix. Uh, There was a sort of... um, and I think, I'm not sure, I think perhaps Alison Stratton or Stuart Moxham described their approach to songwriting as being akin to composing a haiku, a Japanese haiku. There is, yeah, uh, so images would like jump out of the lyrics. Um, the sparseness also gave me a sense of intimacy. And I've since heard the album many times on headphones and that's an extraordinary experience as well. So all of those things were were fantastic and it was really interesting hearing this artifact from the 80s without context. I just encountered it as a slab of vinyl, put it on, no expectations and as I said I was incredibly impressed Uh, and strangely emotionally moved by it and I say strangely because Alison Stratton's vocals are, let's say, naive in terms of musicality and delivery, but they're also oddly flat. She does, she's not a singer who emotes a lot. So as much as I can recall that, that was my first impression. And as I said, you know, it was just something that um, you had given me to listen to. It came highly recommended. 
But apart from that, I knew nothing about Young Marble Giants. Now, you, on the other hand, have a very different experience. This is a band that you knew and, and loved back in the day. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you first encountered the album. Sure. I'm going to start, though, with a fairly recent quote. It's the archetype of bedroom-made music, but because it has that lack of slickness, it really draws you in. David Byrne said that. Uh, David Byrne adores uh, Young Marble Giants and pretty much from that time. And you can understand why, even though Talking Heads might have moved on to, like, at that stage, um, Remain in Light, which is very big. They didn't start out big. They started out very themselves, very intimate, very bedroom. And... He's describing a kind of kinship, I think. Uh, <clears throat> and that's the kind of thing that struck me. Because 1980, which is when I first heard at least tracks of this played on Triple Z, was an album of really big statements. Um, the Cure brought out 17 Seconds, which is basically the blueprint of the rest of their career. Very sort of moody, atmospheric, cinematic sort of thing. David Bowie brought out Scary Monsters, which on the one hand sounded very big, but also was a real a retreat back into having a, a rock and roll band behind him. I could go on. Uh, the Fall were bringing out the sort of chaotic uh, poetry rock. And in the middle of all of this, uh, there's this intimate, uh, you said it yourself, everyone who, who mentions Young Marble Giants and describes them uses the word intimate. And there's a lot of good reasons for that, partly because the arrangements are so sparse. Um, nothing, there's, there's nothing extra. Even when they bring in another musician to play a little slide solo on... I think eating Nodamix, um, even that fits. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like they brought in a session musician. Um, there are no strings, no choirs, no no real synths. So they use a little organ. I'm not sure what kind it was. I don't think it really matters. They could have p picked one up in an op shop. Well, all of those things told me that they were noticeable by being back in the corner, by being pushed back sonically. Uh, they didn't. They didn't care if you'd rather listen to Susie and the Banshees or the Birthday Party. They were just there. You could discover them when you would, and a lot of people did. And this is one of those albums that um, was really circulated on cassette before a lot of people owned a copy. I don't think that there was a local release for a while. You had to go and and get a uh, an import, or you just had to wait until Triple Z. Someone on Triple Z played it. Um, so it was it was kind of uh, very much a discovered thing. Then every time anyone discovered it. It, it, they felt as though they had discovered it themselves for the first time. And there was a, there's a very, no one really talked about it. You know, they talk about the Echo and the Bunnyman new album or something like that. But if you said Young Marble Giants, everybody knew. Everybody understood. Everybody recognized it. Everybody kind of treasured it. Um, if you went to any party of the, the kind that I used to go to back in Brisbane in 1980, 81, 82, 83, someone had that black and white cover. Um, not too far away from the front of the stack. Searching for Mr. Right Waiting up half the night
Robert Smith was loading his Robert Smith away up. Susie Sue was doing the same kind of thing with learning how to be Susie Sue for the next decade. Whereas Young Melbourne Giants sounded like, we don't mind if, if, if it doesn't grab you from the word go, um, I'm sure you'll come round to us. It has that sense of patience and um, lack of bravado, lack of, um, lack of pluck, really. And yet there's, there's really quite a lot that's innovative about it. Yeah, it's interesting when you compare Young Marble Giants to the bands that were prominent in that period, and you've just spoken and named uh, some, uh, well, you've just uh, named some of the most prominent bands at that time. Mm -hmm. And if we move on to their context, it's really interesting. They kind of look a bit like punks, although you mentioned the album cover, which reminded me immediately of With the Beatles. Exactly. Yeah. You know, faces in black and white uh cover faces in half light mm -hmm. um i mean i'm not sure that was a i can't oh, think, I think that band. was pretty uh, intentional yeah oh really okay yeah. but yeah. the the expressions aren't particularly like the why the with the beatles cover is so striking is that they don't particularly look like they're they're welcoming in like brigades of teeny bopper fans they're just the guys and they're doing the same kind of thing on Young Marble Giants, but there's a kind of, I think that's the thing. Maybe we can talk about this aspect later. You can do this with the cover and you can do it with the music. There's so little affect in there that it kind of invites you to write upon it what you will. So while Robert Smith's learning how to sound like a, a, a ghost in a Hollywood movie, Alison Statton dropped the R, by the way, um, <clears throat> sounds like she's at a bus stop, like Stuart Moxham said of her. Uh, but the songs aren't like that. The songs might be, in fact, the kind of thoughts you might have while you're idle and waiting uh, for the bus, or while you're in bed smoking a cigarette and drinking a cup of coffee, or something like that. How would you how would you describe it in those? Well, the interesting thing for me is that. There are fantastic juxtapositions in some of the songs, and I'm thinking of a song like "Eating uh, Not a Mix." Not a mix is what a, a it's candy a cereal bar, bar, like a, a cereal bar, mm, like a muesli bar. Right. So this is a really interesting song because what you have is, I guess, a sort of alternation between uh, the, I, I suppose the, um, the 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 narrator in the song, you know, staring at the mirror on the steamy bathroom wall, and she's eating this this um, not a mix thing, and then immediately there's a description of a disaster. Mm. You know, people are running, the high rise starts to fall, mm. while she neatly wipes her lips. Yeah, it's like it's on TV. Exactly. Yeah. The reporters pick up their pads and pens as they rush to the scene. And the cameras wink on the gory views that the editors agree. Yeah, so it's a, the kind of alternation between the everyday, the, the mundane, mm -hmm. 
and this world beyond the TV screen, which is filled with disaster and doom and gloom and, um, you know, really a very, very striking uh, lyric, I think, for that song. It is. And again, uh, sung without affect. It's not, I'm the God, I'm the God of yours. Nothing like that. It's not operatic. It's, it's, this is happening. It's like she's describing a photograph, she's saying. Yeah. Uh, if you can, I mean, what did you know about Young Marble Giants at the time? I mean, you obviously um, heard them on Triple Z in mm. Brisbane, but what did you know about them as people? Uh, almost nothing. Uh, about as much information as you'd get out of the songs or the, uh, or the cover. And the covers, like, apart from the, that write your own personality thing or imbue this with your own personality uh, style, it's, it's pretty much that. I might have stumbled upon something in Sounds or NME. But it didn't strike me that they were really forthcoming about their, who they were or where they were from. It was years before I learned they were actually from Wales. But that was part of it. That was part of, I, I guess you could say mystique, but this is a mystique of, of simply a lack of information rather than a pushing of an image. So if you're comparing it to, say, the mystique of someone like Keith Richards as a rock star, um, he can do a million interviews, and yet there's something that you just don't get about him, and that's the point of it. Because he this brings us on. Yes. Mm. So this brings us on to another theme that we've addressed before: yep. the anti-rock mm. or the the, the rockist um, debate. Yeah. as far as I know, is a industrial city that was probably one of those cities that was hit very hard by Margaret Thatcher's mm. um, policies in the 1980s. It's an industrial town mm. about two and a half hours from London, I think. So they were geographically away from the centre of what was happening, but they managed to get themselves on rough trade, mm. which was quite a coup, was it not? What do you know about rough trade as a... Record label. Rough Trade began as a specialist record shop in London in 1976, and in the tradition of City Lights Bookshop, patrons were encouraged to socialise there, creating a scene around new and marginal culture at the dawn of British punk. The transition to record label was by repute a fairly organic process, as members from bands like The Fall or Sweaty Polity mixed with the founder Jeff Travis, and the notion of using the identity of the store and scene arose as a brand. The stable was a loose bunch, but united by the various acts of difference from each other and then from the mainstream. Young Marble Giants, being such square pegs in any scene, were a perfect fit. The label went on in later years to feature acts such as the Go-Betweens and the Smiths and is still in business today. Their lyrics also, uh, while I think of uh, very much 
attuned to the time, have a more subtle um, approach to the issues of the day. Mm. Um, Do you think it's because they're not really declaring anything? That's right. It, it, it's like the songs themselves, which are very sketchy mm. and open. Mm -hmm. So there are never these sort of, you know, ride on, rah, rah, rah. Mm. song like Colossal Youth is, is a good example, mm. you know, where you've got this, it's kind of philosophical, you know, if you think the world is a machine with one cog and that cog is you, or the things that you do, mm. then you are not in the world, the world is not you. Mm -hmm. I love that stuff, yeah. you know, and it goes on and on and on. And as I say, these are the sorts of things that really like uh, I think mark them out as being distinctive and draw you into their world. Yeah, it's, it's uh, because it's, it has the naivety of like schoolboy lyrics, but also it, it there's some profundity to them. It's not, and and, and at no time, uh, as you say, they're not like hectoring, but they're also not really sort of saying I I'm alone in the world and you know it's all black and bleak and I'm going to kill myself after the this song ends. Um, there's nothing like that, and so much of it is um, open for the listener to write upon it. Uh, as you say, they're very fragmentary, and the whole the whole two sides really form one thing. It's like a suite of songs that turn into one large work. That's a very good point. In fact, it reminds me that part of the enjoyment I derive from Colossal Youth is because it reminds me a little bit of the Beatles' White Album. It's a mm. similar sort of experience where you're drawn into something that is just not a collection of individual songs. It is an experience. A, a world or a set of worlds are created which you can inhabit and you can interact with. Yeah. Um, you know, in the Beatles' case, there are a lot of songs on the White Album that as individual songs are not particularly strong or compelling, but somehow within the context of the album, they work beautifully. Yeah, they work uh, in sequence. And the instrumental tracks, I think there are two, are there mm -hmm, not, mm -hmm. in Colossal Youth, have, uh, you know, they they are placed perfectly as well. Oh, yeah. You know, um, well, the great wind sequencing. Is, yeah, well, the wind in the rigging. It's, um, I think it's extraordinary because uh, they, they just have that, like that's what sounds like a steam-powered percussion, that that sort of thing and it's just played on a really simple like Farfisa organ or Vox organ or something like that which has no dynamics to it it's just that's the sound you get that's the there's no there's no uh, velocity one note sounds as loud as the next but it manages to be massively emotional What's happening there? I I still haven't quite worked it out. And, I, and the thing is, I I'm happy not working it out. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, even songs where you do get an inkling of some kind of resistance to the status quo are done in an almost surreal way. I'm thinking of a song like Include Me mm. Out. Yeah. You know, rearranging the atoms in my head, who, you know, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it is this song which is, um, you know, there are references to the 60s, I yeah. think. And, yeah. uh, and, and at the end, it's like, you know, um, include me out, don't label me, a, a, a sentiment that I associate very much with that time. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. Um, and it's, it's, in a way that's not saying, um, you know, kill the hippies or anything like that, which, you know, dead Kennedys were doing. The other thing about it, I mean, I can I can imagine this, you know, repurposed as a, like a, a a samba album or a, a bossa nova album. Some of the the melodic lines go into ninths and elevenths and things we just wouldn't expect them. Which is one of the maddening things about it because it doesn't. It's not like someone who's learned how to play A minor and C together in a song. I mean, you'll get chord progressions a bit like that, but there's often a melody over the top that's really kind of sophisticated or it's it, it, it might be delivered in a naive fashion with Staten's vocals being sort of very light. But if you played it on a, a piano and you just put like a double bass to it, you could get, you know, Astrid Gilberta. Well, that would be a really interesting thing to do. It I think be. I read somewhere that uh, Stuart Moxham spoke about his songwriting as a set of sketches that were songs that other people might fill out mm -hmm. and make more expansive. And it would be really interesting to try and re-record some of these songs mm -hmm. in a totally different way, as you say, as a bossa nova or in some other genre or with acoustic instruments. Um, that's possible because of the the air, the space mm -hmm. that's... Mm -hmm that's in these songs, they, they are suggestive of so many things. And it sparks the musical imagination as much as it does the intellect, yeah. uh, which is fantastic. So we've talked a, a lot about intimacy, space, minimalism, and so forth. But perhaps we should um, spend a little time like breaking down the sound. Okay. So what are the instruments? How are they played? And, and so forth. So maybe you'd like to kick that off. Okay. Um... <clears throat> Generally, you've got, um, in terms of the instruments, you've got a bass, uh, an electric guitar, and uh, an organ, which um, sounds very much like a little 60s organ, like a farfisa, like the same one that you can hear in Elvis Costello albums from that time. Um, uh, Alison Staten's vocals, which are almost uh, never backed up. There's only one song where they are. And on one song, there's someone playing a really, really simple um, slide figure. And I think that was, uh, yeah, a friend of theirs from. They, they didn't even play that themselves. Like that, that's as as close as they get to a session musician. One of the most important parts of their sound, the drum machine. Now, the drum machine in this case, they, they did exist. In fact, uh, if you had a home organ of any kind of um, any kind of sophistication, it had a little rhythm box to it. So you'd like switch on rock or march or samba, and it'd play 
something that just didn't vary. It would play one bar of something and it kept on going. Now, the Moxham's cousin, his name, I think, was Peter Joyce, um, was a hobbyist, electronics hobbyist. He, like, he made his own synthesizer, and he also made a drum machine. And it could do basically that. But you could program it towards doing what you want. So you get this mix of often very quirky rhythms that do not, in themselves, vary at all. So set and forget. And apparently... This guy, Pete Joyce, made the drum machine from schematics that were in a magazine called Practical Wireless. Oh, yeah, that Wireless. would be right, yeah. Mm -hmm. He got it from... Because uh, my, my dad made a, a home electronic organ. Didn't have a drum machine in it, but um, uh, just in his workshop. I mean, th this was... If you were into it, you could do it. Uh, he also fashioned a, a ring modulator, which is one of the easiest uh, effects that you can have. And that was largely to put on the drum machine. Ring modulation is a signal processing effect, so-called because the diodes that allow it are set in a ring formation. Not because it sounds like a ring, which is what I used to think. A source wave, like a synthesizer note, is passed through another, like a generated sine wave, and can then have aspects like its dominant frequency manipulated. What does that mean? Well, here's a basic MIDI drum pattern. When I put it through a ring modulator, it might sound like this. This. Or this. Of course, other effects like reverb and echo can also be added. Almost every rhythm track on Colossal Youth is put through a ring mod or something very similar and to my mind, it, it was them saying, okay, so we're only going to use very, very simple percussion, and we're just going to keep to that. That'll keep us in time. But we don't want it to just sound like um, that simple ticky-tacky drum machine. We want it to sound a little uh, either warmer, perhaps, or... Well, different in each track, and it does every time they use it. They don't use it in every track. Sometimes it's very plain. Uh, but when they do use it, uh, things like the, the way it begins, this little comes out of the, what I think of as the darkness of the first track, Fade In, for Searching, searching, searching for, for Mr. Right. Yeah, and there's that it's, long it's fade a, in It's it. a maddening. You don't expect it, because they could have just begun that straight away but they elected to have this slow approach. It's kind of telling you, everything we're going to do is up to you coming to us. And even in that approach to using a drum machine, because I'm not sure if many people were doing that with drums. I mean, the Cure are using a drum machine, probably something far more sophisticated by that stage. And that's all over um, 17 seconds. And they would mix that in with uh, a real drummer. Um, but... But they're really big, fat sounds in the Cure's well, eventually, um, case, well, are they not? Eventually, yeah. I mean, in 17 seconds, there was a fairly self-conscious attempt to sort of play things uh, for weirdness. So, like, there'd be drum machines where you'd expect a, a real drummer to be and, like, it'd be mm -hmm. compressed rather than sort of stadium-ish. But uh, Young Marble Giants started this idea with, using the percussion track that they didn't really very much that either treated or they wouldn't but it would be in this one place where it wouldn't even have the sophistication of a 
one of the, the shorter craftwork tracks, which the, themselves were self-consciously minimal. Um, and that's possibly where they got a lot of the idea for that from. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Um, the other thing that strikes me about the sound is the way in which the bass guitar is very prominent, mm. but it seems to lack the real low-frequency heft that was quite prominent uh, in that period of time. Mm. It's very mid-range, mm. and it has a, a kind... It's almost like a... Uh, like a bass six or something in, in yeah, terms of yeah. tonality, which and that that gives it gives it prominence, I mm -hmm. think, which is really interesting. Well, it's also playing riffs. I mean, it, until you know that Jockey Lonnie is a bass, it you you think it's a guitar. It's right up on the fretboard, and played with a pick and very trebly. Yeah, yeah. Well, all the guitar's doing is, which is part of the rhythm. Uh, by the yeah. way, that that is really genuinely rhythm guitar because he's he, that's the way he's making the rhythm more complex than just the drum machine. Yeah, he's using because the bass voice. part on that song sounds a lot like the spaghetti western style. Yes, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So that's interesting. Um, and then the guitar, which is characterized by a prominent use of palm muting, mm -hmm. almost all of it is. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, occasionally, like he 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 will like play open chords, mm -hmm. but um, we could do a little demonstration. So you know, if you were to take just a, a simple chord progression uh, and play it thus. Like you can hear that what what happens in uh, this short example is that you know the strings ring out the chord is very much defined and while you can hear the the pick it's not as defined as when you adopt this technique called palm muting where basically you the guitarist will rest the strumming hands bridge. palm on the um bridge on the bridge yeah and what that does is that it gives you a very percussive effect so you are playing the chords, but they sound like this. Palm muting was very much, um, you can use that to really easily uh, emulate the sound of, uh, of late 70s, early 80s. And you hear that like throughout this album That's to right. great effect. And that really, so the guitar becomes uh, part of the percussion. I mean, the rhythm guitar is always, I guess, part of the rhythm section, but given that this is such a minimal band. The guitar does a lot of the, the sort of percussive. The, the guitar does a lot of the sort of percussive work, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think it's um, it's used as, as an extension and uh, of the, the the percussion that's there, which is all is what the repetition of one bar. 
But um, he does change up the, the busyness of what he's doing with the palm muting throughout one song. It'll be different figures, so it'll be adding to the rhythm. Meanwhile, the, the bass, as you say, is being more melodic or it's being riffy. But now and then it, it'll be palm muting as well. Uh, because the, I, I think the idea was because we have so little that we're going to rely on, we better make these things versatile. So while you might come away from an experience, a first listening, say, of the album, oh, it's all the same, you know, they just do this. There's really a lot of changing up they do within songs and certainly between them. They're all using that technique. It's a very, it, it's not limited to that era, but a lot of the bands, it was, it's one of the sounds of that, one of the signature sounds of them. But they're not using it that way entirely. I mean, occasionally you'll get it, you know, four to the floor. But it gets more expressive the way he uses it in things like um, Chucky Lonnie, um, or even. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's partly because there's so much space mm. that your attention is drawn to mm. each element in the sonic palette, and that brings me to um, the point that it's the interplay of these instruments that I find really, really intriguing. Mm. Uh, particularly the interplay between the guitar and bass. There's almost a dub-like approach. Mm -hmm. I, I think they were fans of reggae and dub. And I don't um, think you could get away without being fans of dub. Not at that period. <laughs> so not in the UK anyway. Yeah, uh, because there is something about that that interplay the, in, in terms of the the timing of the bass. Yeah. You know, that quite often it's almost like a question and answer, call and response yes. approach that I hear in a lot of reggae and dub music. Yes, it's, it's that interplay between the instruments that really is incredibly compelling. And the other point I think that, that you have made uh, is that when you listen carefully, there is a lot of variation in how they play the, their instruments. Mm -hmm. And it's that detail coupled to the atmosphere that's created that makes this a, a brilliant record. Mm -hmm. Each time you hear it, you, you do kind of tune in to these little nuances, which are just fabulous. And it's just kept me enthralled now for so many years. It's one of those, I used to say of it, um, that you put it on and it's so familiar that you think, uh, but you leave it on to listen to the entire thing. You don't just sort of go, oh, a couple of tracks. Or you don't, you don't pick tracks out. Uh, I certainly have my favourites, Brand New Life and Searching for Mr. Right are just some of my favourites of any era. But um, in context, they just seem to, because it's so familiar, I suppose, it's like the White Album when you're used to the sequence, that they just come welcoming, you know. Oh, that's Chucky Lonnie. Oh, right, that's, uh, yeah. that's that one, that's that one. Um and yeah, it's it's hard to know how to. I I think it would have been murder to to sequence this damn thing because you've got this sort of 
oh, they're so similar, but everyone's going to think we're going to sound the same as another track like that. But somehow they did that without um, uh, without really, without ever becoming too samey and yet having a, a unified sound rather than uniform sound overall. And something that would just encourage you to listen to it as a, a one extended suite of things rather than like the hit single or anything like that. And there wasn't one of those. I think partly it works because the song structures are not what you would normally expect from a pop band mm -hmm. in the sense that there are few choruses, mm -hmm. no solos apart from perhaps, you know, that slide mm -hmm. um, guitar thing that you mentioned before. More of an instrumental it's than a solo. Well, just yeah, like a little and, break. Hmm. Right. So you, you you don't have middle eights. You don't have all of the strategies and techniques that are very familiar to listeners of pop music. It, it's part of this strategy which is designed to make less more and mm -hmm. to um, provide sketches of songs rather than complete songs in some ways. And and that I find really intriguing. And perhaps that's why it works as a as a whole better than it does when you pick up particular songs. Although, as you say, um, Brand New Life, fantastic song on its own. Yeah. And I can imagine that being done as a more elaborate production mm. that would possibly be very successful as a single. Easily. Well, um, different song, but... Uh... Hole picked up on Credit in the Straight World. doesn't sell me but uh it's interesting in that it did take a different approach i mean they didn't do the young marble marble giants version um so i wonder if that was uh courtney love being schooled by kurt cobain who was a fan yeah, of yeah, colossal fan. youth yeah. well it, yeah it's one of those things i think if you it, it's interesting because i mean they have been covered but because the the songs are so uh so fragmentary uh it's it's hard to sort of pick one out and go okay I'm going to do this this is going to be the big hit single of my band doing a cover version of Chucky Lonnie that's that's not going to work unless you you do flesh it out and you turn it into some sort of epic because there's, there's certainly the melodic material to do that in every one of the songs it's just that they seem so delicate and so uh, uh, intricately constructed that you just don't want to take one of the pins out because yeah, it'll just collapse or it'll just sound oafish if you did because i couldn't imagine you know a, a a grungy sort of band doing searching for mr right or something like that it would be horrible i think so too <laughs>
um, I'm, I'm generally free and easy with things like covers. You know, I don't, I don't really mind if somebody wants, wants to do a cover of one of my favourite songs, you know, Love Will Tear Us Apart or whatever. Um, as long as they do something, they bring something to the table and they just change the, the uh, approach so they don't just play the same arrangement and things like that. As long as they show that it means something to them and they find a meaning that they can put onto it. That was called Nita, and this next one's called Eating No Donuts. There are some extant live performances on YouTube of Young Marvel Giants, which are definitely worth checking out. What's your impression of how they came across in, in the live context? Well, my immediate thing on seeing them and I saw all of these way after uh, I knew they uh, way after 1980 well like probably in the 2000s and not until maybe not until YouTube maybe uh, so a long time after and it struck me that, uh, that well the first impression you get isn't it is that uh, they sound pretty much identical to the the arrangements of the record um, they used like maybe cassette tapes to to get the drum machine going rather than using the drum machine on stage because that might have been a, a nightmare to to live with but it strikes me that if these were bedroom songs and they were formed exactly in that fragmentary way that that was it they they weren't you can't imagine them jamming can you so no. they, they, got, they got up on stage they don't even talk much they go this song that song that song and so the 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 experience is of it is you going to see um, that album played, but with the people on stage rather than, hey, I wonder what they're going to do with them. I did hear when they played the Meltdown Festival in 2015, which was curated by David Byrne, okay. when they did the sound check, the sound engineer bumped up the, the bass on the um, drum machine uh -huh. and they said no. We want it soft. <laughs> this is, you know, so in 2015. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. So even though technology could have given them a much larger sound, they wanted to play softly. They wanted, and as you say, the interesting thing about the things I've seen on YouTube is the songs are exactly the same. Uh, yeah. There's no improvisation. Mm -hmm. I think what they did was that they taped the drum machine. Mm -hmm each song so it corresponded exactly to the record yeah. and they just played this set of songs over and over again um but wow what a set of songs well, and what a great experience particularly you know as we've said um there was this sort of rockist uh, sentiment mm -hmm. in the in australia anyway i'm not sure whether the same thing applied in the uk at the time but Young Marble Giants are certainly one of these bands that rejected all of the trappings of rock and roll. Yeah. Not only in terms of their sound, but their image, the stage presentation and so forth, um, which in some ways, I, I guess, makes them... Uh, 
distinctive, but also, you know, off their time because there was this idea that to be original, you had to engage with new technologies and new ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. And do you, t- I mean, uh, th- there's also a sense in which, you know, that softness maybe is reminiscent of um, like ambient music, do, do you think? Or is that stretching oh. things a bit? Well, I think we've both read a book recently that um, that makes that claim, and I do think it's a stretch. If it's if it's ambient, go back to what ambient means, which is atmospherics. Um, there's definitely that, but um, see, that's the thing. I think the way the, the the whole thing's packaged, it's it strikes me that's what black and white music sounds like, mm-hmm. and or or music that's lit from another room, that kind of thing. So I mean, immediately I'm writing things onto this as I remember listening to it, and in fact, <laughs> we. Well, certainly, I after I moved to Melbourne, I sort of resurrected it because I bought a, that vinyl copy because it, it was only on cassette. I didn't even know the names of the songs for five years or so. Um, and I would go into the, the living room and, and new seat. I didn't know anybody for the you know, months, I guess. Um, <clears throat> felt very sort of um, dejected. That would go on. And um, it would, that would be the sound of my mood. But the look of my mood would be the hall light coming through to the, the lounge room. It's all very... <laughs> and that's fantastic. That's a great way of expressing what this album does because it is about mood. And it, and I liked you talking about it as a black and white album, not only because of its cover art, because it has this monochrome atmosphere. Mm-hmm. It's taking elements out, you know, like you take... You know, you desaturate an image and it becomes moody and it becomes compelling. Whereas when you have the full range of color, sometimes it's too much information. So I think it's a really good analogy that you draw here about why the album's compelling. Perhaps we can conclude with 33 and a third, the Mm. volume that is devoted to Colossal Youth, which I read very quickly last week, mm-hmm. um, ignoring your uh, recommendation that I don't bother. <laughs> um, and I have mixed feelings about it. But firstly, Peter, what did you make of the book? And, mm-hmm. and perhaps say a little bit about the 33 and a third series. Sure. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a series from a publisher. Hang on, I've got the book. Bloomsbury. Yeah, Bloomsbury, there we go. Um, and what they do is... They solicit uh, books publicly. Now, there are really good ones and there are really bad ones. The good ones tend to concentrate on how the music uh, is expressed and how it makes the listener feel and maybe an investigation of why that is. They might have some uh, history of how the, the record was made. So they'll draw you in. So there'll be a book about that album, about its place in the musical history, about its place in people's hearts, and that sort of academia with warmth kind of approach, which the volumes on uh, Low and uh, Another Green World have in spades. They are brilliant, brilliant books. The two authors seem far more enthusiastic about their own ideas than of the object in question, which is this marvellously influential album. They, they do talk about things like how it's influenced and, and its legacy and its reach. But there seems to be no joy in what the, the record is. Um, why They don't describe the music much. They'll describe 
a decision or a recording decision or a um, what they can glean from the the arrangements but there's there's no real set no, there's no organic organic sense that um, you get that they've lived uh, many listens of the album they don't seem fans of it as much as uh, a surgeon who might really enjoy looking at a skeleton how about you well I agree with you insofar as it's a dry book. I didn't find it especially compelling, but I did learn a lot about Young Marvel Giants. And as I have said repeatedly, this is an album that I didn't encounter in its original context. So it was interesting to learn about uh, who these people were and what Cardiff was like. And some of the ideas I did find intriguing, like um, the comments related to feminism, for example, mm. what happens when you have a male songwriter writing for a female voice yes. and that songwriter, in the case of Stuart Moxham, seemed to be quite ambivalent about, well, not ambivalent. He didn't really, he, he I think, wasn't it a case of Alison? Um, it's her or nothing. It's her or nothing. Because yeah, she was his brother's girlfriend. Right. So Philip uh, Moxham said, she comes along or I don't play. That's it. So, well, that, that that's according deal. to this book. I, I'm not sure, but I think it's it's been repeated enough that that is the sense of it. Yeah. So my impression was that Stuart wanted to sing and it was somewhat disconcerting to have another voice sing his lyrics, a female voice. Mm -hmm. And so the book does talk a little bit about, well, mm -hmm. that's part of the strength of the album, that you have this female voice really providing a different take on lyrics written by a man. And in doing so, there is something intriguing. There is something perhaps mildly sub subversive about it. So I was intrigued by ideas like that. But, and I agree that they didn't, the writing was also not only cold, but didn't do much in terms of conveying an enthusiasm. No. There's, there's just no joy in it. I I, I do like uh, what you brought up about the um, the feminist angle. I, I that's the second last chapter about where Alison Staten stood in all of this, and there's the last chapter is more about the legacy. Both of those are really good, and it's a bit like a lot of uh, thirty three and third books. One of the, the ones that I'm ambivalent about, but its better bits are very good. Is the one on Pink Moon, um, and the author admits that they wrote it from that one, like it was like a dissertation or something like that, but there's one chapter in there which is about uh, Pink Moon um, from a personal perspective, and it, re it reads the best out of the entire book. Uh, <clears throat> and that's, the rest is just, it's not quite puff, but it's mm. written around that being there in the first place. I think the books that are most interesting in the series are those which do have some sort of personal angle. And I think the Young yes. Marvel Giants yes. volume certainly lacked that. Isn't, it was just yeah, because you know, making, drawing long bows a lot of the time. Yeah, and, um, yeah massive stretch. Uh, and I think we talked a little bit about, you know, um, the ambient reference and there's a whole section there on Eno and yeah but so wow forth. they take it to alpha space it's just yeah Look, but, but isn't it ironic though um i haven't read that one on her album but um it's ironic that such a um 
an album that creates such warmth in its listeners, and it does. It's uh, colossal, as, as opposed to something like Closer, which you have to, which, which is quite forbidding. Um, Glossy Youth is never that. It's very, it's it's welcoming in that um, come here, go away sense. We're just the little band on the in the little room. Um, come in, you might enjoy it, but we're not going to put a, a flyer out. You know that that's. But it, once you're drawn in, I would say, and partly it's the the one album. It's the the dying young in that sense, um, because they only had that one artifact, and they when they play, they play that one artifact again. As, as though they has have been resurrected, you know, from the the graves of, of Cardiff fields, um, to treat such a, an album that has that that its listeners and its fans and fans are fans for life on that record. I can think of many records that I loved at the time that I've just abandoned or forgotten, whatever. But that one never. That one's there forever. It's like the White Album. That's oh, closer. And then to treat that with such. Um, surgical indifference or enthusiasm for the surgical materials rather than you know the the act of making someone or something better which is partly why you would write about music doing that yeah and that's reflected in the prose style Mm. which is really bad and it's not badly written it's just boring and Mm. uh, that's that constitutes in my book terrible writing ultimately well, uh, I think we've covered everything we intended to. Maybe, I mean, we could go out on um, nominating a track each, but in this case, it's sort of, it's against the spirit, I think, of what both of us think about this album, that it's an album that you play from beginning to end. And so to pick out individual tracks is maybe not a good idea. One of the other things I find interesting about Young Marble Giants is what um, they went on to after that, so apart from the EPs, um, they broke up as a trio. Um, Stuart Moxon went on to form The Gist and Alison Statton with, uh, with Weekend. Um, and both of those bands' recordings featured Philip. The Gist are very um, sort of like that slightly synthy lounge of the early 80s, things like uh, Swan's Way or Blue Nile, those sorts of bands. Perfectly lovely, but... They just don't have the same, they can't really have the same impact, but he, he's certainly trying to try something very, very different from where he'd been. You can recognise that it's his songwriting, but he's really moved on, and there might be something very conscious about that. With Staten's band Weekend, there's one song, I don't think they just left it in one album, but there's one famous album called La Varieté, and the point of that is, like French radio of the time, there was still that sort of thing where you could have a rock hit and a pop one and a ballad and all that on the same radio station. Uh, and there's a lot of world music influence in there, uh, like a lot of jazz, um, a lot of bossa nova with like um, nylon string acoustic guitars. It's much bigger production. Sounds like uh, those might be good to play well, in the podcast, I'm th- like little. I'm thinking of thing um, or, or... going off with the uh, the final track, which is called Nostalgia, which is very it's, it's very universally applicable. They're beautifully written words. It's, it's a very uh, brief lyric, but it's done in the same kind of voice that she was using. I mean, she does attempt to sing more expressively on this album and in this band than in uh, YMG, but in Nostalgia, the one that will run out on. 
she's kind of found a perfect point between trying to sing more uh, fully and the that cold light way she was doing in um, Colossal Youth. And there's this like echoey guitar figure and it's very floaty and you get these really poignant, bittersweet words. So it's a million miles away and it's just in the next room. Don't get another dose 